Welcome to the eighth installment of our podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, produced by FASTA and the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Sean O'Conline, Agus In this episode, Caroline White will be speaking with two active members of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, who come from very different professional fields. Jakob Hafele of the Zoe Institute for Future Fit Economies, and Lars Munter of the Nordic Health 2030 Coalition. They'll be talking about what's behind their own interest in the well-being economy and the priorities they believe are needed to bring about the changes and the transformation that we all are looking forward to. We'll start with Caroline speaking with Jakob. So Jakob, I'm delighted to have you for our podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed. Could you just say a few words, please, about what led you to be interested in the well-being economy? Sure, thank you, Caroline. So um, I always like to start the story with primary school, actually, because, you know, back then I was always really, really annoying for all my teachers because every situation that I felt was kind of unjust, I tried to change that. And that's basically what I'm still doing today, I would say, only now I'm working with policymakers. And I also figured that it's actually much more effective to be an economist rather than to just be annoying. And the second, I think, important feat of me is that I'm, I'm half Austrian and I naturally love the Alps and the mountains. And I don't know, Caroline, have you seen ski resorts right after the snow melts? There is like so much waste. It's like crazy, literally crazy. And it's like I, that really hurts me, you know, seeing that really is painful for me. Mm. And I really don't like the way how we treat nature. And I think those two things led me to kind of look for a solution, how we can create a society, you know, that's socially just and at the same time doesn't overshoot our planetary boundaries. And as an economist, I came across the well-being economy quite a while ago and figured it is a really useful approach because it puts means and ends back into the right place. You know, right now we confuse this a bit. We kind of run an economy in which people work for the economy and we use natural resources to create more economic growth. So the primary aim or end, if you will, is always economic, you know. However, I think what we need is actually an economy for people and the planet. So the other way around and the well-being economy is just that it creates kind of a new goal and a new North Star, so to speak, a new kind of point of orientation for us. And we're also working on concrete ways to make that happen. So, for instance, with the Wellbeing Economy Guide that I co-authored together with the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, we want to provide practical tools how policymakers can really create this well-being economy. And we're also working with several governments on this topic to support the transition to well-being economies. You work for an institute called Zoe Institute, um, and you've you've been touching on some of the things that you do and working to promote future fit economies. Maybe just to backtrack slightly, could you just say a few words about how our current economy is not future fit? So I think on the one hand, what we're doing right now is we are definitely overshooting our planetary boundaries. So you can see that with CO2 emissions. I think a lot of people know that. But I think another very important thing is that we're actually creating a lot of biodiversity loss. And I think this is also a very, very important problem that's probably not looked at enough because if we don't have any bees anymore, it's going to be seriously difficult to pollinate plants. And this is going to create many, many problems for food production. And on the other hand, we are still not capable to meet basic human needs on this planet. So 
there's still a lot of people starving or that don't have enough access to like schools or basic social or health infrastructure. And I would say it's no wonder that we end up where we are because you can still earn a lot of money by planting monocultures or by claiming natural resources, you know, taking fossil fuels from the ground and burning them, or by exploiting child labor to kind of produce your products cheaper to gain more market shares. And, you know, as long as we incentivize this economic behavior, as long as you can earn a lot of money with this type of behavior, it's normal that we end up in the situation because it's incentivized. You earn a lot of money with it. So I would say this situation is going to explode in our face if we don't do something about this soon. So I think it's really not future fit at all. And I think the essential question then is, how do we create an economy where those incentives are different and an economy that works for people and the planet? As you say, uh, we have to make some fundamental changes and you've done some work and you've also produced a, a paper with We All, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, about this. Could you explain a little bit the, some of the changes that you're recommending? I could talk about this for like an hour or even longer. So I think if you want kind of a longer answer, I think it's a good idea if you had a look at the Wellbeing uh, Policy Design Guide that we wrote. Or what's also probably really interesting to look at is our report on resilience, creating resilient economies that you can find on our website, zoe-institute.eu. But anyway, I will give you my, uh, my personal top three. So first is, and I touched on this, but let me dig a bit deeper here also. So first is we need to get means and end, right? So we need an economy that works for people and the planet and not the other way around. And that also means letting go of the idea to always prioritize economic growth over other goals. And, you know, right now that's not easy because we are very dependent on economic growth. You know, our closure provisioning systems, for instance, they are dependent on economic growth. And the problem with that is that if we let go of that goal as the priority, it could happen that we create problems in our social provisioning systems, for instance. So that means we have to find a way to get independent of that and create economies that thrive whether or not they grow. And the second thing is that I think what we really urgently need is a more systemic understanding of the situation is how I would call it. So we need to understand the interlinkages between those different things we are talking about. Because if we let go of always prioritizing economic growth, or always saying, okay, the economy is the most important part of the society, then that means that other goals are becoming more important. And then it becomes more complex because we want to achieve social and ecological goals at the same time while probably still wanting to have a resilient economy. And in that scenario, we have to deal with the interlinkages between those different dimensions differently because we have to renegotiate, you know, the priorities between them and we have to find new solutions how to achieve social and ecological goals at the same time. And we try to do that, for instance, in one project where we are test piloting the policy design guide that I've just been talking about. And the approach there is that it's very important that you bring together people from different ministries, because right now they are really working in silos, is how we call that, you know, so you have environmental ministries, they're doing the environmental things, then you have the economic ministries, and they're doing the economic stuff. But what you have to do is you have to put them together and find a solution together. And it's not only them, but what's also important is that you let citizens participate in that process, because they are the ones that are going to be impacted by the policy in the end. So to create policy solutions, it's very important to have a participatory approach where you find a solution together above silos with different ministries and with citizens involved in the process of co-creating those kind of solutions together. 
And the third, but not least thing is, I think we have to change what success means for businesses. Mm. Because right now, social and environmental goals play way too little role in that. And as long as it stays that way, the government can only treat the symptoms of that afterwards. You know, as long as businesses don't focus on that, the government has a hard time to steer them in a different direction. So what we have to do is we have to create markets in which businesses thrive that focus on social and ecological directly. With businesses, I think sometimes there can be structural impediments or things that make it harder for them to switch goal or to really follow through, even if there are well-meaning people in the business. The famous one, I said, profit maximization to shareholders when you hear about a loss. It doesn't apply to all businesses, but I guess it applies to some. And then more generally, you know, if there's a financial constraint or a need to pay back a debt or something like that, that can pressure particular behavior to go in a particular way as well. So, yeah, it seems like there are things that have to be looked at on different levels to try and help them to change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think like the solution for that is very much also on government level, you know, so I don't think it's so much about a business deciding that I want to do it differently, because as you just said, sometimes it's very difficult, because if you're constrained by your shareholders, you can't just make that decision, for instance. So in that scenario, what we need is basically policy to create different incentives and a different kind of framework in which those businesses can then act and, and also follow different goals. Yeah, exactly. And do you see in your work with different policymakers and different silos, as you say, in bringing people together and so on, have you noticed any kind of signs of hope or like there's some sort of shifts in mentality or in approach at all? Or where would you see the potential for change? Very, very much so. So um, we work a lot with the European Union and the European Commission. And I think the primary example there would be the European Green Deal. And I'm not sure if people really understand how big of a deal this is, because the old commission, the Jean-Claude Juncker commission, what they had is economic growth and jobs as their two primary priorities. But with the Green Deal, this changed a lot. So now the environment comes first. And it's not only, you know, what you can find on paper that priorities shifted, but what you can also see is that the environmental ministry got a lot more power now. The environmental ministry has much more power now compared to before the Green Deal because they are now directly tasked to write policies for the Green Deal, which is the priority of the European Union. And that really makes a difference in policymaking, a huge difference, because like now the economics ministry has to talk to the environmental ministry much more because the environmental ministry, they got tasks that are super important. And that way you really shift the balance of how important different topics are in policymaking. So yes, definitely on that level, you can see a lot of movement, but also on kind of the level of the people working for those governments, the staff, you can see that a lot. So for instance, we are working with a group of EU commission officials for two years now. And what they are trying to do is that they're trying to mainstream the donut from Kate Wayworth, donut economics, which is basically an economic model bringing together social and ecological goals. And they are trying to mainstream this very model into the policymaking of the European Commission as one of the primary monitoring tools for the Green Deal. And I think that shows us there is really kind of a desire to do this. And this very group, because we talked about silos, they actually, they started their work on a workshop of ours where we try to break up silos. So it's basically a lot of people that kind of met for the first time and then were really happy that they could work together now with people from different ministries on an overarching topic that was so difficult to deal with. 
if they would only work within their own ministry. So yes, I think there's a lot of movement. There's also a lot of other governments that contacted us in the past, like national governments, but also um, we also work with cities. And, and this really increasingly happens that they also come to us and tell us, okay, you know, we're really looking for support, how to make that happen. Can you show us examples of other governments, how they implemented well-being economy policies? How can we do this? And we are really trying to support them there. And I think on the government level, there's definitely a lot of recognition and people, I would say, really start to realize that it's urgent and important to transition. You work on the EU level a lot and country level. Do you have an idea about uh, a more global level, uh, how the EU policies interact with other parts of the world at all? Yes, we, uh, for instance, we did wrote a report on the question of becoming independent of GDP growth. And what we did is we looked at what actually happens if we would really be in the scenario where maybe growth in the European Union continues to be really low or maybe even negative and how that would impact the rest of the world. Because, you know, this is really not straightforward um, because right now a lot of countries are basically also dependent on the growth of the European Union because they build their kind of economies around exports and their exports then go to the European Union. So if the European Union stops to you know, consume so much or import so much, then this potentially has an impact on those business models as well. So yes, we definitely look at that. And I think it's a very complex question because like the interdependencies, the international interdependencies are quite high. And I think there are arguments on both sides. So on the one hand, yes, well, then exports go down and that's probably not good for those economies. But the other bigger question is, is it actually kind of a development model that countries want to follow in the long run where they only focus on exports? Or is it also more interesting for other countries to run other development models that are maybe not so dependent on functioning of huge uh, markets like the European Union. Yeah, it's a really interesting question and there's so much controversy, as you say, about this. It all ties in with the question of how open economies should be and all of that. And, and, um, and, and it's fascinating, I think, to look at the history of uh, how countries became wealthy and different ways that were used to boost national economies. Like you probably know the work of Hai Yun Chang. I don't know. The, he's a, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've, I, I actually, I've, uh, I used to work in, in industrial policy also. So you're touching yeah. upon a topic that I'm very enthusiastic about. Yeah. <laughs> so let yeah. me just say a very few words on this but yes i totally agree and i think it's actually a really weird situation that basically all the countries that are rich today they are prescribing medicine to countries that are low-income countries that they didn't take themselves to get rich you know so it's a bit weird like they all didn't really have free markets when they got that rich and they all protected their industries when they were developing their economies and this is essentially also really important because you have to understand that Worldwide, in low-income countries, you might have some very, very young industries, but they cannot directly compete internationally with an industry that's already existing for 50 or 60 years, that's mature and grown already. So you have to kind of protect those infant industries until they are able to compete internationally with the other industries. And this is especially the case today because 50 years ago, when South Korea made this Asian miracle and had this rapid economic growth and economic development, the world was very different. You had much higher economic growth rates and it was much easier to get into markets back then. And today it's not only about producing a car, but it's also about a huge industry around it of advertising. And it's very difficult to maintain supply, modern supply chains that we have. And like competing in this new world is even much, much more difficult than back in the 70s. And even back then they used infant industry protection 
to do this. So um, yes, I think it's really sad actually that we focus so much on free markets as the primary tool to give low-income countries the opportunity to develop economically. That was Jakob Hafele of the Zoe Institute for Future Fit Economies being interviewed by Caroline White. Caroline went on to interview Lars Munter, who has a background in health literacy and promotion and is involved in the Nordic 2030 coalition, the We All Danish Hub, and of course, in EHFF itself. Thank you very much for agreeing to be in our podcast. I really appreciate that, Lars. Could you please just say a few words about what led to your interest in the well-being economy? Well, I've been working for a long time in self-care, promoting self-care, promoting empowering practices of various kinds, reminding people that they play a role in their own health and well-being. And it's been a core element in a lot of that, that obviously prevention, self-care would have a positive ROI in terms of economy too. We do that to avoid extra costs too. My intention was not necessarily one of cost, but one of well-being, one of quality of life. But it has been over time, one one discussion that I've had so many times that arguing for better self-care, arguing for more, more health literacy, arguing for more empowerment leads invariably to also saying, well, there's actually also an economic upside to this. A small investment doing this would lead to so-and-so. Um, so talking about or thinking about what I was suggesting was an element in the economy of well-being. When did I come across the phrase? Probably during the Finnish presidency, that fairly late, I guess. The concept made complete sense because I've been doing that for a decade before that, but I didn't have the phrase in mind. I had worked before that also for a number of years on related to the sustainable development goals, the relation between health, sustainable economy, corporate social responsibility, and so on. But the concert itself wasn't really either coined or hadn't been on my radar. But it made perfect sense. But having done that for a number of years, it then became obvious, which was interesting, that the concept of the economy well-being was not really debated much in Denmark, where I come from. And we've discussed in Denmark, as I guess most countries around the world, how do we use our money when it comes to health? How should we invest in healthcare? How should we and so on and so on? All of those debates. So while originally when talking about self-care, I was talking about things that might be related to better exercise, better hygiene, less drinking, other stuff, traditional public health issues. Over time, well, I have to talk about the economy. I have to talk about investments, investment policies and so on. And then that has been very interesting too, especially because in the healthcare system, money is something that you just have sometimes, I suppose, or you don't have. How they come about is sort of vague. They simply grow out of budgets and where that are those budgets actually come from, who decides about them and who decides who doesn't have any, that it's vague. And trying to introduce holistic ideas about how to use money, uh, holistic ideas about if you did so-and-so within the healthcare system, you would have benefits, has been really tricky. And the tricky thing is probably related to that the entire mindset around the economy doesn't use those holistic ideas or fails to establish KPIs that would allow those holistic mechanisms to, to be utilized. 
but also working with investments and working with economy. There's some fascinating ideas because if you look at the um, area of investments or economy of energy, they've been working for a number of years on describing what a good energy investment would be. How do you measure it? What would be the outcomes of it? How can you evaluate the green investment versus the black? But what you then have is a complex system of investments where you have all of these different factors that you try to use in a, in a combined system to judge whether your investments has a positive ROI, where, whether it would be a good idea over a decade or a couple of decades to do that. And you can also build policies that would, for instance, uh, lead you to say that, that the oil would have to stay in the ground or under the seabed. And also you have quite uh, well-defined ways of describing the value of humans in that What's the cost of, of, of pollution? And you try to build a policy that would say, okay, if we have so and so much microparticles in the air coming from diesel or whatever, that would cost so and so. And therefore, it would be a good idea to implement clean air policies, or it would be a good idea to implement particle filters, lorries or whatever. But within the healthcare system, it's been an ethical challenge to talk about the price of a human life. And my point here is not one where I say that everything should be put up in money, but it's when we have the challenge of doing priorities on thinking about how we spend money, it is indirectly a challenge of the healthcare system, then since we don't talk about money, we don't talk the language of money, therefore we're not invited in a way to the table. I've been also working a little bit related to the economy of well-being on the economy, if you will, of uh, social investments in urban planning. And one of the guys that I met during that was an American who worked to help socially disadvantaged communities and in transforming their needs into something that could be understood as an investment opportunity, answering some, if you will, fairly simple questions. How much money specifically do you need? What would be the expected return of investment? What would be the risk of that investment? And how long would your investment period be? Simple questions that any investor actually needs. It is not the same as bowing down to the traditional economic system. It's about understanding the mechanisms also of how investments needs to be prioritized. A concern I would have is this talking about the language of money, framing the whole argument in terms of return on investment and risk in a very conventional, if you like, financial sense. For one thing, it is hard to identify clear answers. I'm thinking here of the environment, actually, but I'm sure this applies to health as well. And for another, it's not clear that there's going to be a return on investment in the same sense, in the traditional sense. I wonder about whether it's fair to assume that the expectations of the investors are fixed, that they are always going to want a certain return or whatever, you know, whether a more constructive or more realistic mm. approach might be to mm. also bring into question, what are the actual core goals here? What are we trying to achieve here? Because I think if we do focus on traditional return on investment and so on, we are potentially on rather shaky ground. My response would be twofold. One would be that if you assume that the investors would always choose investments that had the highest return of investment, then you would be right. Then you would just be playing into traditional greed. 
But investors of various kinds across the world, they, they're not necessarily choosing always the highest return of investment in terms of money. They are able to recognize that in, in addition to this particular return of investment, they get other benefits from it. And we can talk about those just in a segment or two. But if you're unable to give them a clear answer about what the return of investment might be, a half a percent, quarter of a percent, none maybe sometimes, but just to give them an answer, what do you have any idea about the return of investment on this? The answer can't be no. The answer has to be yes, I do. I've done the math. Uh, it gives me that this will be a return of investment over a 10-year period of X. Then you're in the game because you give them, provide them with an answer. It might not be a very huge return on investment, but it's a known factor. And I would say that what we've seen, for instance, in New Zealand with the economy of well-being is that they're attempting to provide estimates of the financial benefits of certain stuff. Gaining a friend is one sample that I use quite a lot. The exact value of gaining a friend clearly is written with a lot of insecurity. It's how do we know that they got that number right? We don't. But what we do know is that if you leave that box empty and say, we don't know, we don't have a clear answer, that's even more wrong because clearly there's a value. They just need to know what the return of investment would actually be in the same sense that if you have a huge equation in the financial system, whenever you come across something that would be a blank, the equation breaks down. You have to assign it with some kind of value for the calculator to begin. But the other element is, of course, that you're completely right. When we monetize everything, money or dollars or euros or whatever is a proxy for something else. That proxy is sometimes nice proxy. It has a very accurate proxy. Sometimes it's a really shitty proxy. But that is what it is. If you can talk the language of money. It also introduces then that maybe, okay, now we've left aside the issue of the money. Let me introduce this other indicator too, because this is really helpful. This could be my happiness indicator or my carbon indicator or whatever indicator out there. And, and what we've seen, for instance, as a case in point, 10 years ago, maybe, we wouldn't have huge corporations delivering carbon accounting. But we do. And nowadays, it's, it's quite common that people can understand and appreciate a carbon accounting. They understand, I mean, they don't understand the intricacies of a metric ton of CO2, maybe, but they can understand the math of either a positive development of metric tons or not. They can understand and appreciate something that goes in a, in a positive direction. And so they developed an understanding of a different metric that wasn't money that had a different element to it. So I would say that over time, having other KPIs that are not money or it doesn't use that proxy is also something that can happen. People can start to recognize a different metric. Maybe in the Nordics, especially, we had a lot of fun for a number of years on competing on happiness as an indicator, really a very trusted indicator for how well our country were doing. Hey, we're number one in happiness. We, we must be cool guys or gals. And then also that shaped also certain policies because they wanted to be the best in happiness. So it wasn't about money. It was about a different metric. And similarly, I would say that right now the OECD are, are working on, or they were almost finalized, I suppose, the work on the Paris indicators that measures satisfaction. Uh, that gives an, a satisfaction element to the assessment of healthcare systems. So we're not talking about the money, we're talking about a different indicator. 
But once you have the language of money, you have the opportunity to also then reflect on other indicators. I think the thrust of what you're saying is relates to clear information, making sure everybody's on the same page. We all understand things in the same way. We're communicating clearly. And I think that's definitely true. I think there also needs to be a role for regulation. I don't know what you feel about that, but mm-hmm. that there's a danger of rebound otherwise. You know, you could do really well in some area, like mm-hmm. really improve, for, for, talking about the environment again here, but decrease in emissions in one sector. But then if there isn't a regulatory structure that requires that they be decreased elsewhere. You can just um, with more emissions somewhere else. And in fact, that's what's happening in the world at the moment. Where, you know, well, I, I completely agree on the need for regulation. But before you can regulate, you need a, an assessment. You need a metric system. You need yeah. some kind of mechanism that would allow that regulation to be governed. Otherwise, you can hand out the regulation and then be flying blind. Um, yeah, I think you can go too far and the other way too. It's the balance to be struck because mm, I think, um, yeah. sometimes people can just get completely bogged down in measuring things. And where yeah. Yeah. also, what you're measuring, as you've said earlier, is so important in terms of just talking about emissions again. You know, you can be trying to measure every single little tiny emission here and there, which is very hard and takes forever, or you can be measuring where the emissions are coming from and dealing with it at mm. the upstream level, which is way more efficient. So yeah. Uh, yeah. sometimes I think there's a danger of very well meaning movements and so on but they can get very bogged down in trying to map tiny little details and not enough stepping back and what's Mm -hmm. actually causing all this in the first place and how can we deal with that that was caroline white speaking with lars munter of the nordic health 2030 coalition earlier we also heard from jakob hafele of the zoe institute for future fit economies many thanks to jakob and lars for their participation to david somek for his help in organizing this podcast and of course, to our own Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and please spread the word about our series, Bridging the Gaps. Please also keep an eye out for our next installment at the end of November. Good day, Shiv Galer Slán. Mm-hmm.